Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. The income tax bill is over the finish line, but big questions still remain on what the legislature will do about property taxes and whether it will be enough to provide relief for Idahoans. I'm Melissa Davlin. Idaho Reports starts now. Hello and welcome to Idaho Reports. This week, Ruth Brown interviews Representative Brandon Mitchell on his experiences with the foster care system and what he thinks Idaho can do to help recruit and retain more foster parents. Then Gooding County Assessor Justin Baldwin and Shoshone County Assessor Jerry White join me to discuss Idaho's rising property taxes. But first, on Monday, Governor Brad Little activated the Idaho National Guard to assist with COVID-related staffing shortages at Primary Health Medical Group and the Idaho Department of Correction. This comes as Idaho's positivity rate dropped modestly this week, down to 34% from last week's 39. Meanwhile, hospitalizations have risen across the state. Pediatric hospitalizations are also rising, and Idaho recorded its second pediatric death from COVID-19. For more of our COVID coverage, visit IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. On Tuesday, the Senate passed an income tax reduction and rebate in a 27 to 7 vote. The bill provides a tax rebate to Idahoans and lowers the top individual and corporate income tax rates to 6%. Also prominent in the debate, strong disagreements over how to address the state's sales tax on groceries. My motion to move House Bill 436 to the 14th order is only to add grocery tax repeal. It's only to remove the tax on food. For years now, this is the most consistent topic of discussion. This is the most consistent ask from the people of this good state. And I just find it incumbent upon us to offer them that relief. What you're hearing from the public is they want to keep the tax credit and get rid of the sales tax. If you get rid of the credit, people are going to get an increase in taxes. They just don't understand it. Uh, the proper move is to uh, increase the credit. That motion to open the bill for amendments failed with only Senator Christy Zitto and the Democrats in support. The debate then turned to the original income tax proposal. And I'll tell you up front, with due respect and with great respect to those who have worked so hard on it, um, I probably would not have spent this much money this way. That said, I recognize the state should not just sit on the, the money either. I do believe a tax cut is, is, you know, it's certainly acceptable and it's something we ought to be doing. But I think that in these times, we ought to be looking at what really will immediately benefit the people of Idaho. And so, um, in my mind, that's repealing the grocery tax credit. They will get immediate relief when they go to the stores. And it's looking at property tax relief, which the constituents I represent are desperate for. We sometimes forget that when they write those checks, when they submit their forms, it's coming out of the same bank account. 
So whether it's an income tax or property tax or sales tax, it's all coming out of their same checking account. After it passed, the governor signed the bill on Friday. Idahoans should start receiving those rebate checks in late March. We'll have much more on taxes later in the show. On Thursday, the Senate passed a bill that would allow Idaho school districts to enroll their employees in the state's insurance plan. Lawmakers have lauded the proposal as improving pay parity for teachers and possibly taking some of the pressure off of reliance on supplemental levies. The bill now heads to the governor. In a Monday budget presentation, Department of Health and Welfare Director Dave Jepson told the Joint Finance Appropriations Committee about the dire situation for foster kids and the need for social workers. There is no question that collectively we can do better when it comes to the child welfare system in Idaho, which is much broader than just DHW. We want to do better. We owe it to the children of Idaho. I acknowledge the issues and reassure you that we are engaged in problem solving. One of the ways we hope to increase recruitment and prevent the loss of experienced staff is through recruitment and retention bonuses. The current staffing shortage we are experiencing is causing our caseworkers to be overloaded. That's a vicious cycle. When a staff member leaves, the amount of work does not decrease, which means the staff that are left see an increase in their workload, causing them even more stress in an already stressful job. Currently, Idaho pays among the lowest, in fact, the lowest stipends for foster care among any state anywhere around us in the West. And our heroic foster families who open their hearts and homes to support children in foster care are facing increased housing and other costs. The department is requesting an additional 21 social worker positions and increased reimbursement rates for foster families. Last year, the Idaho Capital Sun reported that more than 40 children had to stay in hotels or short-term rentals because of a shortage of foster families. Representative Brandon Mitchell of Moscow and his wife have fostered a number of children over the years. He joined Ruth Brown on Thursday to talk about his experience and his views on what the state can do to support foster care. Representative Mitchell, thank you for joining me. I appreciate your time today. Thank you, I appreciate the opportunity. Um, I was hoping to talk to you about your experience fostering children. Uh, last year, you spoke vocally about your experience. Um, what can you tell me about um, the benefits of fostering children and what has that been like for your family? Well, I think that we started getting into foster care early on when, in our marriage and it is, uh, in our opinion, it was a blessing to be able to help these children out. And I think that that's where, um, that's where most of it came from was from the heart. Um, had several, uh, several kids through our home that, uh, that really touched our lives. Um, I, I shared a story last year on the, on the house floor um, and I, I am fine sharing that again this year because um, we passed a bill for the, for the foster system and uh, I was a big supporter of that bill. Um, basically that bill allowed for children that uh, aged out of the system if they didn't have, if they weren't ready to take on the world then uh, they, they had the opportunity to stay until they were 21. Um, and we had uh, an instance of uh, two young ladies, um, the, the, the young lady that was in my home and then her sister. And uh, as, soon as, as soon as they aged out, uh, her sister, who was in our home, or the young lady in our home, um, actually uh, called us back and says, Mom, Dad, I want to come home. And so we did. We brought her home, got her back into school, got her uh, head in the right direction, and she's, she's doing great. She's serving in the military, getting ready to go overseas again for the second time. Um, and then on the flip side, her sister that, that aged out and didn't have that to latch on to ended up in a totally different path down in Las Vegas and, and it was just, uh, 
it was it was sad to see, but it was good to see that uh, that our daughter came out and, and did that. On Monday, the Department of the or excuse me, the director of the Department of Health and Welfare went before JFAC, and he is requesting 21 new social workers as well as the ability to pay those folks uh, overtime rather than giving them comp time. Do you support that? What do you see as the value of that? So it, it's kind of interesting because we, we watch where our tax dollars are going and, and where it's being spent. And I think that uh, having more social work workers out there is a good thing um, because it gives, um, it gives the families that do take on these children, gives them a, a support that they can go to, um, a, a way to, um, someone to turn to when they have our questions and need answers. Um, I think that it's important that we have the right amount out there that, uh, to help out the children, because we've got a lot of children out on the streets that, uh, that need a, a good home to go to. So you're not on JFAC, but outside of just state funding, what do you see as um, ways the state could improve the foster system through policy? So I think that one of the biggest things we can do is really, uh, um, I guess, advertising um, the importance of it the importance of, uh, of taking care of these children that don't have a, a, a good home to be in, that don't have a good situation. I think that that's one of the biggest things we can do is just get out there and make the public aware of it. Um, and then seek out and find those, those parents that really do want to do it for the kids. Um, it, it's, in our home it was more about the kids than it was about any kind of funding that we may have had. Um, and, and I think that that's important. Uh, obviously, there are costs involved. Um, we had a lot of costs involved with, uh, with all the kids that came through our home. Um, and as a therapeutic home, we had, had even more costs. And they, they took care of us on some of the costs there. But I think the biggest thing is just making sure that the parents are, are in it for the right reason and taking care of the kids. And I think uh, getting the word out is going to be the big thing. Uh, parents who are in it for the right reason, uh, that rings a bell. Uh, Director Jepson is also asking the state to increase the compensation for foster parents. The state of Idaho does have one of the lower rates for compensation of Idaho. I know you've expressly said that uh, you and your wife were never in it for the money. Um, do you have concerns with raising the rate uh, for foster parents or? I think the, the only concern that I was have, would have is, is how high we raise it. Um, I don't want to see, I don't want to see it get to a point where people are doing it just for the money. Um, um, just to give an example, when we were doing uh, foster parenting in Oregon, there was a lot of uh, families down in Oregon that were doing it just for the money, and they'd take on five or six kids that they couldn't handle, um, but it was all for the money, and so it was more of a, it, it was taken on kids and they weren't able to give the love that, needed, that was needed. Um, and I say that, you know, we uh, um, had an experience with a couple of kids that were brought into our home, and uh, they were uh, um, abused at a very young age, and uh, the young boy, about four years old, was uh, not able to, uh, to talk. He was still in diapers, um, just laid on the floor. And, and uh, the caseworker told us that's what he's gonna do. And a week later, she called us and said, how are they doing? And I said, oh, they're doing great. Hunter's out playing with our son. And she, uh, she came over immediately and sat on our couch crying because he was out playing. And she said, what have you done? I said, you just love him. He just knows, needs to know that he's, he's taken care of and safe. And, and that was the biggest key. And so I, I guess if I were to say something about that, I think that that's what I would look for in foster parents, is someone who's gonna care for the child. And, and so the funding, I'm all for, we need to help them out with some funds. Um, I just don't want it to get to a point where it's for the money instead of for the kids. 
Uh, you have worked with children who've come from uh, troubled homes. What would you say is the consequence of um, living in a state that has a shortage of social workers, that has a shortage of loving foster homes? What should people understand about that? I think my biggest worry with that is, is that these, these children eventually grow up um, and they, if they don't have the right kind of a, a stable environment to grow up in, then they become a, a burden on the state through having to spend our tax dollars on the welfare program. Um, some of them end up going down the wrong path and, in, and get into crime and stuff. And so I think the, the important part to remember is that we need people that will take care of them. And if, if we don't have enough people that, that actually care about the children, that you'll have too many of those kids that, that are lost, that we lose. And, and nobody should ever get lost. For Ruth's full conversation with Representative Mitchell, visit the Idaho Reports YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. And to hear more about the shortage of foster families and the challenges facing Idaho's foster care system, listen to the January 12th episode of the Idaho Reports podcast with Idaho Capital Sun reporter Kelsey Mosley Morris. On Tuesday, the House Business Committee moved forward a bill that would prohibit local governments from capping application fees on private rental properties. State law already bans cities from controlling the cost of rent on private properties. Boise is currently the only city in Idaho to have a cap on application fees, an ordinance that passed in 2019. That cap is $30, and most of the testimony on Tuesday opposed the bill that would do away with the cap. Right now our community is suffering and I hear from folks every day about the ways they are losing their dignity in trying to survive in this moment. And so I urge you not to make life harder for Boiseans or Idahoans. We need to be a business friendly state. If we want people to build apartments here and have housing, we need to be friendly. The reason rent's high right now, there's not anything available. And property taxes are ridiculous, they're high. Those, rent, those rental companies, they have to make up for that property tax. The bill passed committee after two and a half hours of testimony and will go before the full House for debate. Now that lawmakers have addressed income taxes and as constituents clamor for them to address rising property taxes, what's next on the agenda? Over the last week, lawmakers from both parties have introduced a number of bills to further tweak the controversial changes they made last year to the property tax system. We have a rundown of those bills online at IdahoPTV.org slash Idaho Reports. On Friday, I sat down with Gooding County Assessor Justin Baldwin and Shoshone County Assessor Jerry White to get their take on the situation and what they think lawmakers should focus on. Thanks so much for joining us today. We've heard so much about property taxes in the lead up to this session. What's the situation in Shoshone County? Um, in Shoshone County, and thank you, Melissa, for having me. Um, we were kind of a bedroom community to Kootenai County, which is seeing the same problems that, you know, Ada County does. Um, we're seeing With growth and cost of living, right? Right, correct. And, and, but being a bedroom community and very little public land, our inventories are low <clears throat> and people in Kootenai County are being priced out of their homes. I, I think their average home sale is just south of 500,000 now. Um, that excludes a lot of people from the market that want to be homeowners. So we see them moving to our area because they can buy more home for the dollars they do have and or even buy a home. 
So we're starting to see our values increase dramatically. Um, last year, we've seen a lot of 20, 30% increases in our residential properties. This year, I'm, I gut feeling, I'm pretty sure those are gonna be 50, 60%. Um, we also had a lot of homes that were, second homes that were being rented out have since sold. So in the meantime, we're seeing our rents dramatically increase. Uh, three bedroom, two bedroom house, two years ago, could be attained for around $700. And now that's closer to $1,700 or $1,800, so. That, that's a steep price for a young family that would be looking for a two or three bedroom home. Exactly, it's, it's very difficult. I, my heart goes out to young people either looking to rent or buy a home and, I, and our wages are going up, but it, I don't think they're going up in the, the same as our values. So. And Shoshone County also has the highest per capita number of residents on the Circuit Breaker program. You know, can you briefly talk about what the Circuit Breaker program is for people who aren't familiar with it and, and why it's so heavily utilized in Shoshone County? Mm. Circuit Breaker program, or also referred to as the Property Tax Reduction Form, is a program that's funded by state sales tax and it's for elderly, 65 and older, widow, widower, and there's some others, you know, like prisoner of wars that fall in that. <coughs> um, this year their income has to be less than 32,230 after medical expenses. Um, one of the reasons it's so high count, we have a little over 2,000 people that received the homeowner's exemption. Last year we had 647 people that qualified for the circuit breaker program. One of the reasons it's so high is that myself and my staff who are fantastic really push the program. We, we do outreach, we talk to people, and it's a small community so word of mouth gets out there that it's a great program. Also, we have a lot of widow, widowers, especially widows in our county. Um, we're home with large hard rock mining. And hard rock miners, they, they, they tend to die young. I mean, it's a hard, hard on your body type um, activity. So it leaves a lot of widow widowers out there. And also we have a lot of people that love Shoshone County and, and they've lived there 50, 60, 70 years, so. Sure, sure. And what are you seeing in Gooding County? Uh, over the past three to four years, we've seen significant increases in valuation. And it, it can be attributable to a couple different things. We're a little bit of a bedroom community of twin. And so as, as people would get priced out of the market in Twin Falls, then they would start coming to the satellite counties. And, and that was how things sort of started. Um, at the beginning of the pandemic, I would have predicted that property values would crash because I thought, you know, people can't get loans, the economy shut down. Um, I <laughs> was 100% wrong. And we saw exactly the opposite happen. That uh, it's a concept called Zoom Town where a lot of people that are no longer tied to a physical workspace start searching for other places and and something like the Hegerman Valley then gets discovered 
and we've seen significant increases in valuation and we just started to track where people were coming from because we all went to blame Californians. Um, but that actually represents only about a third of, of the people moving into to Gooding County. And then about a third are coming from, from Ada County. And so I think that in rural Idaho, we're definitely seeing this disproportionate increase in valuation that we're not prepared for because of inward migration from, from outside sources. Do you have any idea how many people might be asking for hardship exemptions this year? Uh, not yet. Um, with the passage of 380, that's what put the 125% valuation cap, 125% of the median home value valuation cap on like the circuit breaker program. And so this, this is a created crisis. And I can't accurately predict how many will apply for hardship because we haven't had a situation where people were being kicked off of of the circuit breaker, the property tax reduction before. And and I think it'll it'll be significant. In in Gooding County we had last year we had 380 circuit breaker applicants. And of those, 57 would not make, it's about 15%, would not make the 125. And that was House Bill 389 that was passed last year. That was the controversial mm -hmm. property tax. And there were a lot of provisions yes. in that bill. Um, so, so about 15% of people, if that stays in place, mm -hmm. would be kicked off the circuit breaker. Do you know how many people in your county would be kicked off the circuit breaker if this stays in place? I do. In Shoshone County, <coughs> because we're a small county, I wait the counter along with my great staff. And so most of these, and being a small county, I know the majority of these people. Of the 647, we would have 91 that would be excluded from the program at the current level. So, and 44 of those are either widow or widowers with a single income, so. It are, when you're interacting with some of these folks who, who are trying to navigate these changes, are, are there any stories that you're hearing or situations that you're hearing that really stand out to you? I mean, people are definitely concerned. I mean, there's, these are, for the most part, long-term Idaho residents who have, they've been here their entire life. And to some degree, they are, they're the foundation that our state was built on. I mean, you can't look at our current economic prosperity without looking backwards to the infrastructure and basically the stones that were put into place in order for that to happen. And, and so that's one of the things that I believe is disappointing about, about something like the 125 percent cap is that the valuation changes are not the fault of the people that are suffering from it. My mother-in-law, for instance, Pauline, great lady, worked hard her whole life, her and her husband. When Frank was working at the mine, he made really good money. Um, for the work they do, I don't think it was that good of money, but it, for, so they built a nice home and they, lived in that home many years. So Frank passed away, um, leaving her with a single income, and her home is in that bracket. Um, she makes, after medical expenses, around 22000 so she gets a benefit to help her with her property tax. Um, it's, and when the legislature call that an asset, that really upsets me because 
these are these people's home. They don't consider an asset. They don't care whether that home's worth 50000 or $5 million. This is the home they want to live in the rest of their lives. And then I have a cousin that's in the same boat. And I have a lot of friends that are in that boat that they depend on this program. Um, it's, it cannot thank the state enough for having this program for our senior citizen. Of the 647, I would estimate that half of them would not be in their homes without it. So that 125% would affect, you know, those 91 people. Now, if they would raise that up to 150%, that would affect, um, we'd, we'd still have 45 that would be eliminated. And there was a house, there was a bill introduced by Representative Shepard for that. Also with a $300,000, whichever was greater, they would be excluded. Of those 45, there's 17 widow or widowers, or 7% of the program. Now, if they'd raise that up to 200% that Senator Bayer introduced, we would, it would leave eight people off the program. Uh, one thing we're seeing is a disproportionate number kicked off from smaller or more rural counties, and it has to do with the nature of averages. Um, someplace like Ada County, when you're, the average is based on um, all properties that qualify for a homeowner's exemption. So if you're in a county um, where there's a, a lot of those properties of, that qualify, especially on the upper end, then your average is higher. But if you're someplace like, like Lewis County, Lewis County I think is losing almost 20% yes. of their circuit breakers. And the reason is because the top values and the lowest values are not that far apart. And so the situation is that if you have somebody on one acre in a man, you know, like a newer manufactured home in the county, they're getting above that 125% because the median value is so low because the top is so low. And so I think that this definitely disproportionately impacts the smaller and the more rural counties. You know, and, and this is assuming that the bill that was passed last year mm -hmm. stays in place as is, this would be the first year that we see that. From a policy perspective, what do you hope lawmakers do? Uh, myself, I would hope that they would change that. Um, they would, you know, it needs to be, uh, the number I prefer is 200% of median value. And that, the intent of the law was to make sure that no one was gaming the system. And, and I, don't, I don't disagree with that. I mean, it's any system like this, there's always some people who want to take advantage of it. And, and so in order to keep people from gaming the system, you know, it may be appropriate that there is a limit, but the 125% as a limit is, is much too low. I would prefer to see 200%. And, and it's, oh, go ahead. Oh, I'd love to get your thoughts I too. I would love not to see any percentage on it, but the 200% would get us there. I, uh, I, th I think the reasoning for this, Justin, and him being our legislative chair, was that people would sell out in other areas for millions of dollars. I mean, it wouldn't be unreasonable to see a home sell in San Diego for a million dollars. Have those people move here, buy a $500,000 home, and put 500000 in the bank. Those people can and should pay for their property tax without a benefit.
To see my full conversation with the county assessors, visit our YouTube channel at youtube.com slash Idaho Reports. For more legislative news, you can check out our online coverage and sign up for our newsletter for a roundup of our work every Friday. You'll find all those links at our website at idahoptv.org slash Idaho Reports. Thanks so much for watching. We'll see you next week. Presentation of Idaho Reports on Idaho Public Television is made possible through the generous support of the Laura Moore Cunningham Foundation, committed to fulfilling the Moore and Bettis family legacy of building the great state of Idaho. By the Friends of Idaho Public Television and by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.